This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Y'all should know it too. You should know her name. Cassandra Frederic uh, is the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a national nonprofit that works to end the war on drugs. Y'all know this is the very same war that has disproportionately harmed black, Latino, indigenous, uh, immigrant, and LGBTQ communities. Uh, Drug Policy Alliance builds alternatives grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. During her time there, she has led really innovative campaigns around policing, uh, the overdose crisis, marijuana legalization, uh, and always through the use of a racial justice lens. Cassandra, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I didn't mention in your bio was that you are known for really mobilizing entire cities to rethink their approach to drug policy. Uh, You're someone who, you know, as opposed to a top down approach, has also a reputation from really working very effectively from the bottom up. Can you talk with the audience about what the Drug Policy Alliance is and how you guys came to be? Yeah, so. Drug Policy Alliance is a national organization where we really work on changing the way that people think, speak, um, and regulate drugs, right? So we believe that the current frame of prohibition, the practice of making drugs illegal, are actually making our communities less safe um, and really putting our health at risk. Uh, We believe this because we see that when we prohibit drugs, it only makes them more dangerous and it Mm -hmm. increases stigma for the people who use drugs um, so that they don't ask for help when they need it. And we're also like, I think it's important for people to recognize that oftentimes people are also selling drugs because society hasn't created pathways for them to take care of themselves, right? Mm. And so we are very much like, we can have conversations around drug use and drug misuse and addiction, but that's not the whole conversation. And that's Mm. the fact that we're having this conversation is based on the policy choices about how we wanted to do it. And those policy choices were um, shaped by racism, sexism, capitalism, um, all the isms, right? Um, Mm. And so it's not actually a real, but the thing that we are struggling with, the fact that there's over 100,000 people that have died from an overdose since last April, Wow. Yeah. I'm sorry. You said there's, can you, I just need to, (laughs) whoa, okay, wait. I need to make sure I understand what you just said. Did you say 100,000 people have died from an overdose since April of of last year? Yeah. Oh my God. I had no idea it was that significant. That is, that's COVID-19 numbers. Yeah, like, no. And I think it's like, even in the context of like, um, in the context of uh, COVID, right? A hundred thousand people, right? People, mm. Like we're looking at these numbers, and so we're in this distorted moment. But like a hundred thousand people have died of overdose in a wow. year, right? And it's like, what is the conversation that we're having? Like, 
and why is it so always focused on criminalization, right? Mm. Um, and what are, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I was also going to say is that when as people have conversations around policing, right, the number one arrest that is happening in this country is for drug possession. That is the number one arrest. Mm. And I'm also going to say that even though we've seen that 19 places, 19 states have legalized cannabis, the majority of those drug possession arrests are for cannabis. Wow. So these are um, intentional policy decisions that are, that we are dealing with the consequences of, and then we get blamed for them. Right. Mm. Um, And I think that is the thing that, we're working to disrupt is this idea that this is a woe is me situation that our decision makers, you know, are running out of options that they have to criminalize our healthcare. They have to criminalize um, our public spaces that they have to criminalize our homes and criminalize our schools just to get a rain on this. And it truly is that they have made a decision to not do the thing that makes the most sense. Mm. Um, which is investing in uh, in people and places. It's investing in people's access to homes. It's investing in making sure that people have access to um, supportive services as opposed to law enforcement. And, you know, we're consistently in a false choice. Um, and so that's the work that DPA has done for the last 20 years. You know, we started in the early 2000s as DPA, but, you know, our work has been since the early 90s um, in our iteration of organization, mm. you know, a, a previous organization called Drug Policy Foundation, another organization called the Linden Smith Center, they merged and became Drug Policy Alliance. Um, so for a long time, there's been a crew of people who have been saying, like, it doesn't actually have to be like this, um, and we can do something different. Mm. Let's talk about one of the something different or some things different (laughs) that your group is doing. Uh, Overdose prevention centers. It sounds like a very medicinal term. uh, And it was a term that once it got on the once I don't know if you guys were paying attention to any of these headlines. But in New York City, when this happened, it was all over the news. Uh, Cassandra, people Mm -hmm. were very much, you know, up in a whole lot of clothing and body parts were in very tight knots because people were very, very concerned about the overdose prevention centers. What are these centers uh, and why is it so important that we have space for these types of entities in our current discussion about drug policy today? So if you talk to people in a lot of cities around the country, one of the things that people are often talking about is there are people using in the street. I don't want to walk and see some guy injecting heroin on the corner. I don't want to see needles in the park where I take my niece. And this has been like a long standing issue in some parts of the neighborhood. I think with COVID and people working from home and congregate housing, not being the safest place for people that are not housed, we're seeing more people outside in the streets Um, and people are struggling, right? And not for nothing, poverty is not attractive to look at. Right. Mm. It makes, you know, people talk about how tight they are when they heard about overdose prevention centers. But I think part of the issue is that we're no longer tight seeing people being homeless in the streets. Wow. We're no longer tight seeing people not have the things that they need to be thriving in our communities. Right. And 
for us in, in our in our broader movement around drug policy and public health and harm reduction, we're like, if we have people who are overdosing at such high rates as I just talked to you, if we have people who are in the streets, we want to create a place for people to come inside and use with the, with the substances that they already have and let them use in the space and have people watch, right, to see if there's someone struggling or if someone is overdosing mm-hmm. so that we can save their lives. But also we can give people, uh, when you come inside, right, uh, it, it brings down the pressure and the intensity around the use. Because when you're in the street, you're paying attention to who's watching you, are the cops there, and a lot mm. of things start to happen because it's just way more chaotic. But in the in the in the overdose prevention center, people are there. They're injecting. They're being supervised. They're able to be connected to services if they're ready to make that decision. Um, this is about slowing everything down. People are like dying at astronomical rates at a, at a rate that we have not seen historically. And we're like, how do we slow this interaction down so we can increase the the surface the entry points for conversation with people, mm. right? Um, either about moderating their use or stopping their use or getting them connected to primary health care, getting them connected to housing. And what we, what the research has showed, you know, the latest numbers I've heard is that they have reversed 115 overdoses. Wow. In, since they've opened in late November, right? Mm. That's, that is like so amazing, right? Because you you have a place where people are coming into. We don't know how many people have been like, uh, you know, that that are now having a different uh, thought process around their use. You know, we don't know how many connections that are being made in those spaces, the community and the fellowship, the trust that's being built, right, um, with this population and service providers. These are all things that are now able to happen because people aren't running in the middle of the street. They're not being stared at, spit at, you know, screamed at. They're um, not being, you know, they're not looking out for the police or being harassed by law enforcement. They're being treated with dignity in this space, um, that their humanity is recognized as soon as they walk in the door. Um, and that's a different, it's a different way to engage with someone when you're looking at them in the eye and not looking at them in disgust, but looking at them like I'm here for you, and I and I care that you, I care if you live or not, um, and that's what overdose prevention centers do. And I know it's been, you know, hard. I'm from New York as well. I come from a first generation Caribbean home. Um, these are hard conversations that I have in my house, and the thing that I have said is like, I'm most like people may be uncomfortable. But for the 115 lives that were overdoses that were reversed, right, that's 115 opportunities that someone didn't have to say their loved one passed away. Wow. And discomfort versus grief are different things. Mm. Um, and if I have to prioritize it, I'm going to prioritize keeping someone alive and do the work to get people to understand why this is a good thing. 
Talk to us about the support services that people who use the overdose prevention centers are able to connect to. Is it just that they're going in? And I know you mentioned this earlier. I just want to tease this out a bit. Is it just that people are coming in? They have a safe place to use. We've removed the the ugly images of poverty from the public eye. Or is it that they're there and yes, they have a safe place to use and then they are connected uh, to the social services and supports. Can you talk about that portion of it just a bit more? Yeah, so, you know, some of the things um, that Sam Rivera and his amazing team at On Point NYC are doing are really connecting people to service providers. So uh, people are doing wound care, right, um, dealing with the abscesses. People are being able to get connected to, like, food security. What are the housing options open for people? Um, if people want to go into treatment, what does that look like? people are able to test their substances, right? To be able to see like, I thought I bought this. Is that only what's here? Or is there something else that's adulterated in it, right? Because the conversation that we've been having uh, around, you know, you're hearing people talk about fentanyl, right? And fentanyl is a, a synthetic opioid that is like being cut in the drug supply currently, right? To make it last longer, but also because prohibition pushes us to create new substances, right? Fentanyl is a long-known opioid that they use for, like, cancer treatments, but people are also using it right now, um, you know, for their use. And we want to make – and it works faster than heroin. So you're seeing people overdose quicker because fentanyl is in their drug supply. Some people know and some people don't. But giving people the option lets them know how they can moderate their use to decrease the incidence of fentanyl, decrease the incidence of overdose. So this just gives us so many more options than if we didn't have it. There are a lot of folks who are listening to us right now, and I, I'm just letting you know, I already know, you know how our community thinks, so I'm not telling you anything mm-hmm. new, but I just want to acknowledge it for the audience. I know there are people out there right now saying, well, if they wasn't using the devil's lettuce, or if they wasn't engaged with these unlawful, illegal, unhealthy activities, mm-hmm. and we would not need an mm-hmm. overdose prevention. Aren't you just helping to continue the devil's addiction? I mean, you, you know, that, that. so what do you say to people? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I'll take it even a step further. You know, I've, I've said before on these airways, you know, I, my house is on one of them blocks where, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if it's going to be a block in the news for some shooting, chances are we've got a good shot of being in the running. Right. So I so when I take, yeah, yeah. you know, my, my social justice theories and I talk with them, you know, with my neighbors, many of whom are very receptive, others of whom say, well, now, little girl, uh, what you ain't going to do is tell me, you know, because I've lived on this block since before you was born. And and, you know, they need to lock them up. They need to get these drugs off the street and take a very punitive approach to these topics because of their lived experience, because of what they have seen and because of the information that their lived experience have shared with them and has shaped how they see these issues. What do you say uh, to the elders in the community who th- hear this and say, well, now these girls just done completely lost their mind and they would call us girls no matter how old we are because we're younger than them. That's a cultural <laughs> thing. But if you know, you know. Uh, what do you say to people who have those types of concerns and are really worried that this is actually helping to foster additional drug use as opposed to stemming the tide of drug use. Yeah, if that yeah. is even the goal, right? And I, I'm questioning whether that, that second part is even the goal. So I, I put that out there as well. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you putting that out there because to me, the goal is 
making sure people don't die. That's mm-hmm. my goal. And I think that how do we make sure people don't die? Why are people dying right now? What is the acute issue that we are dealing with? We are dealing with people dying at astronomical rates. And I want to be really clear. We are dealing with black people dying Come on at now. astronomical rates. Come on now. Right? Because that's something that our community has not really fully taken on is because nationally, when people have talked about the overdose crisis, they have left us out of it, right? Mm. And when people are thinking about overdose, they're not necessarily thinking about us. I think now more and more people are recognizing that people are getting caught out there, but the, the rate of black people and overdose is actually growing. And in some places it's higher oh. that, than that of white people, right? And so for me, this conversation that you're offering, this is a conversation I have all the time with my parents. My dad is like 80-year-old Haitian, right? And he's just like, if you don't, if you don't do drugs, you don't die, <laughs> right? Like, it's simple as that. Your dad must know my elders. <laughs> they having the same conversation. <laughs> like, well, if you didn't use it, you wouldn't die. And I'm just like, understood, hear you. That is one option of that. But at the end of the day, what is important is for people to stay alive. What is clear is that we've always done it your way, right? Mm. We've always been doing the criminalization thing. That's how we got, you know, like, that's part of the reason we have mass incarceration. That's part of the mm. reason why we have such large investment. Like, you can't have it both ways. We have to make a choice. And the choice is really clear based on my side of the street, which is, we have to invest in the health and well-being of people. And that does not include cages. It wow. does not include pe- um, police officers harassing people in the streets. We can have conversations about what these kinds of things need to do. But these elder people are the same. Uh, my dad is the same person that in the beginning of COVID, I had to fight him in the street to wear a mask, right? So, like, these are, like when people want to do things, they do it. And we have to work around them to figure out how can we reduce the risk associated with the behavior that they're doing. And, you know, oftentimes when I talk to elders, I'm like, what are the things that you did that your parents didn't think was okay? Like mm. people get older and then, then they forget that they, all, they also engaged in risky behavior, um, that they also push back against it. And like really talking with people about like, what are alternative ways for us to engage with each other? Um, and that, you know, it may be the de- devil's lettuce, but you're using the master's tool. Oh, so, snap. Like, who we talking about? <laughs> Wait, What's you just made me yelp out loud. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, snap. Wait, hold on. Brittany, I need that in a clip. I need to save that right there. <laughs> Brittany, we need to save that. Um, damn. So... <laughs> It's not even Friday. You already got me to cuss it. Whew, okay. So that was a reframe and a reset. Go, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Because here's the thing. I'm talking to folks in our community. I'm like, listen, I am a child of Haitian immigrants who grew up during the Duvalier era, came to the mm. United States, that built a life. I'm like, I'm very clear about um the the struggles and the, the cognitive dissonance that our community has with this issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be, I'm going to keep it 100 with you. You know, in the 80s and 90s, when we're looking and we're, you know, people are naming Joe Biden and they're naming, you know, the Clintons, we also need to be naming the black judges, 
Oh. The Black Congress people, Ooh. the Black institutions. That stood next to these people, and these tanks rolled through. And I'm not saying, and I and I want to be really clear. They asked for the tanks, but they also asked for the help, right? But right. we only got the tanks. But let's be clear: you also asked for the tanks, right? And now we are in this moment where we're having black mayors in all these big cities mm. throw up their hands and mm. say, "We're done." We got to do something. We got to take serious. Like, yeah, social justice, I get it. But we need to keep people safe. And, you know, what y'all did before wasn't working. But y'all acting like we had the same budget as the cops. Wow. Y'all acting as if the help hasn't been always been connected to criminalization. Right. Y'all acting we had the same amount of time that criminalization has had in our communities. People want us to create miracles, but the thing is, this is this is necessary of a cultural revolution, of a systematic revolution, of a budgetary revolution, and it's not going to be comfortable. People want their peace in comfort, and you mm-hmm. cannot disrupt, you cannot change without conflict, without struggle. And I know that because I'm Haitian. We didn't get free in the Western Hemisphere without, you know, without struggle. And Mm. so I think one of the things that's really important as we talk about these issues is that discomfort is not enough to block progress. Brittany, get that clip too. Discomfort is not enough to that. Yeah, you're full of the dimes today, my friend. Uh, And I need every I need that on a T-shirt. Discomfort is not enough to stop progress. Good grief. Okay, you said a lot there. I want to unpack this a little bit. I know we have a limited amount of time, but there's some things we we just need to hit on. You talked about uh, the fact that right now, when we talk about that 1994 crime bill, we we name check Biden, we name check the Clintons, and I'm I'm right there with it. I got the, the talking points on those key issues. I'm there. But we also remember, when, and maybe y'all don't remember because some of y'all are a little younger than me. I'm only 12, but I know some of y'all are a little bit younger than me. Uh, <laughs> y'all don't, may not remember what Cassandra just described. There were a lot of black pastors and community organizers and, and some, with, dare I say, civil rights leaders who are still very prominent to this day who stood next to Clinton and Biden and all of the other elected officials when they were incorporating the language necessary that made uh, the 1994 crime bill uh, what we ended up getting. And as she noted, our guest Cassandra Frederick of the Drug Policy Alliance noted, uh, we did not just ask for tanks, we also asked for the help, but what we got were the tanks. And so when we listen now to elected officials, some of whom look exactly like us, some of whom are from our community, some of whom use black folk language and speaking skills and patterns and mannerisms very, very effectively because they are us, when they are now in the position of upholding uh, that 1994 crime bill environment, that, uh, that era, that ethos, how do we, Cassandra, effectively combat power when power is being upheld and upheld and sustained by people who know exactly how we feel because they come from our communities and have the experience right they have Mm. the experience of having homeless people in their family have the experience of having addiction in their family and their experiences are valid Mm. however it is not just because you have the experience doesn't mean you are above reproach or critique, right? Mm. And I think one of the biggest things 
that's important for black progressives is that we need to disagree with each other. And I think there's this con this there's this desire for us to protect. But some of the people and some of the decisions that are being made will harm us. Yes. Right? And we need to really think behind when our, you know, siblings who are in positions of power, when they're making these decisions, who are they prioritizing in the decision? Mm. Because mm. it gets really clear. Are they they're prioritizing businesses, property owners, white donors, like, like let's, you know, let's have a conversation and we can disagree, right? Like we can really disagree, but I think we're in this moment where black progressives really have to publicly call out the fact that some of the tools are being recycled Mm. and people might not recognize them because the person who is speaking um, about it looks like us. That's right. Um, but we've been here before, right? Like to 30 years ago, it was people that looked like us that sold this to us. And we have to be really clear in this moment for, you know, the Mayor Eric Adams, the Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the Mayor London Breed, who are having, who are navigating difficult situations of poverty, of yes. gun violence, of addiction in the street, like all these different things. I'm not saying these things are easy. But I'm saying if we are, again, relying on the idea like the progressive, the harm reduction, the public health has had enough time, or we can't, you know, we can't just do that. We have to do law enforcement. And, you know, I know because I have this experience or I know because I look like you or I know because I'm from the neighborhood. That's not enough Mm. because we have decades of research that shows us that this is not the way to go. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think it's a moment for us to really decide, like, do we put these people in these positions of power to do the same thing that everyone else did, but we feel better because they look like us, or do we want them to do something different? Wow. And I think part of that is like, what the pressure looks like, because I don't, and, you know, I'm going to separate this out because I don't want it to, I don't, I'm not name checking these mayors um, and this next statement, but I think we, when I keep saying the master's tool, right? Like, I don't want my master to be black either, right? So we really have to have a conversation about what is power? What do we, and, you know, as Lisa Garza says, what is the purpose of power? Um, and as we, as people that are part of an electoral process, that's part of the conversation. Like who are the elected officials that are coming from our from our neighborhoods that have the politics, um, that we need and that have the support on the ground, right? Because those same people will go out on the limb for, um, those same people will go out on the limb for progressive policy. And then we don't stand with them. When, when it gets shaky, mm. we fight it, and they take all the hits. And I say that as someone who is a, an, a, a, a lobbyist in New York and watching that happen to, you know, Assembly Member, uh, Assembly Speaker Carl Hesey or Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousin, you know, they're taking the win on the progressive stuff, and then people are just pushing back on them, and we're not standing there. We're not pushing up, mm. and, like, they're by themselves. And so I think it's, I think it's a tug and pull. 
Um, but I think we're in a very eerily similar moment to where we yes. were in the 80s and 90s, yes. where we had black people in power pushing conversations of criminalization. I think they're smart and savvy because they're connecting it to public help. So they're calling right. for the tanks and they're calling for the help. And what I'm saying is we just need the help. Leave the tanks. Mm. <laughs> like, let's reappropriate the tanks for, you know, rides um, for kids in the street and all that stuff. But like, let's, you know, decorate them and make them different things. But we don't want tanks. <laughs> We're mm. done. We know what the tanks bring. And if you do tanks and help, what's going to lead is the tanks. Right. Help never leads the tanks. Right? It's the tanks are what leads. Criminalization leads help. So in order for that to be different, we need to leave criminalization alone. What should organizations who are, you know, folks who are listening right now, we, we've got a lot of people in the audience who are policy oriented. Uh, they are perhaps at nonprofit organizations. Maybe they're engaged with uh, the same subject matter as DPA. Maybe they're not, but they want to do good work. They, they want to make mm-hmm. uh, a difference in a more effective way. As you know, as you sort of look out and, and I'm asking you to put on sort of your, your, uh, not necessarily your DPA hat, but your, your just your voice of wisdom hat. As you're looking out over the, the condition of the nation right now, thinking about what you all had to fight up against in order to get uh, the overdose prevention centers established in the environment that you had to navigate to get them established. As you think about sort of the ways that electoral politics and civil rights and, and social justice are, are really in this same sphere, kind of almost in a circular, circular firing squad in some ways, what is it that you you would advise people who are thinking about uh, expanding into drug policy or who are thinking about having more equitable criminal legal system policies around folks who are have addiction struggles, where should they, if they don't have a DPA in their community, if they don't have someone like you who can uh, drop the bombs the way that you drop them, how should they begin thinking about creating more of a health-oriented approach to drug addiction and overdosing than a punitive approach to drug uh, overdose, uh, drug use and overdosing? I believe that people should be looking for drug user unions in their communities. So there are multiple organizations that are showing up all across the country and all across the cities where people who use drugs um, actively are organizing already, right? Like they're organizing for the Mm. things that they need. And people that are interested in like, I want to do this work and I want to make sure that I'm leaning towards health and I'm leaning towards equity and I'm making sure that it has a direct impact on the material conditions for the people who I say I want to help, then you need to work with those people. Mm. And part of the reason why I say people who are actively using drugs is because those are the people that understand the dynamics right now, right? There are some great people that are doing work um, that have the experience of addiction 30 years ago, but that's not the street now, right? There are some tenants that are the same, but there are people that are using now, that are navigating now, that are doing the work now, that are in community now. Um, And those people are leading what are the things that we should be doing, that we should be working on? What what are our local issues? Mm. So people are in a place like Brooklyn, like what is your relationship with like vocal New York, right? Um, if people are in a place like East Harlem, like what is your relationship with the New York harm reduction educators or Washington Heights with the corner project? Like how are you building in San Francisco? Are you working with the San Francisco drug user union, 
or North Carolina, the North Carolina Survivors Survivors Union. Like there are unions of people who use drugs who are building policy, um, uh, direct action, and like setting the agenda because they're like, yo, like this is literally, like literally self-interested. Like I could die mm. if this doesn't get better. Right. And those are the people that should be leading the agenda and what people should do. I love that. We've been using that phrase, uh, that quote, those who are closest to the problem should be closest to the solution. And it sounds like what you are advocating for or suggesting here is that we connect with the people who are closest to the challenge um, and allow them to inform what the solution should look like. I think that is uh, a mantra that should be really applicable in every area of social and racial justice activism. You are amazing. And and I knew we were going to have a good conversation. I'm so glad we were able to have you on. Uh, And I do hope that you will keep us updated on how the overdose uh, prevention centers are going and what other sorts of innovative work uh, is coming out of uh, the Drug Policy Alliance sphere. I know that this is, I believe, the first in the nation, not the first in the world. We've seen these centers established in in other countries, uh, and it sounds as though you guys are really making good use of the data that's out there. Very, very grateful for your work and hope we can get you to come back and keep us updated on what is happening with drug policy in our nation uh, as this is a nationwide issue. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, wait, before you go, wait, wait, before we clap, wait, stop, stop, hold the applause. How do people follow you? <laughs> How can they connect? And even if, and, and please let us know if you are a 501c3, so if people are so inclined to donate to you, uh, they would be able to do yes. that as well. Yes, we are a 501c3. would love people to donate to Drug Policy Alliance. You can find our website at drugpolicy.org. Um, you can follow me at Cassandra underscore Fred on Twitter. Um, my name is spelled with a K and two S's. Uh, we have a good time on Twitter, and uh, there's lots of conversation and amazing people doing the work that folks should follow as well. But it's been a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited. And I really just want to say I appreciated so deeply your preparation for this conversation and the depth of your questions. So mm. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you and the work that you're doing. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Whew, y'all.